We uh, started a series last uh, Wednesday night that we've entitled this, the, uh, what do we call it, the human spirit, I think it is. And um, uh, we kind of left it, uh, uh, I left myself a lot of room to work here because I'm not sure exactly which way we want to go. I kind of wanted to uh, to leave it to where the Holy Ghost could lead us week by week. And uh, so that's what we intend to do. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, Paul is writing by the Spirit of God and um makes a, um, a statement that uh, really defines man. He says in verse 23, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. Now notice that word W-H-O-L-L-Y. In case you're not reading along, I don't want you to think it's H-O-L-Y. Sanctify you wholly or completely. Then that's what the word uh, holy means, completely. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. One translation says it this way. Uh, I pray, God, that you would be preserved in your entirety, your whole spirit, soul, and body. So, and, and that's an accurate translation because it's talking about the completeness or the entirety of man. Now, what does it tell us that man is in, its, in, in, in his entirety? He is spirit, soul, and body. Now, unfortunately, uh, too many Christians, too much of the church world, uh, it seems to me, at least, you judge it for yourself, but it seems to me that too too few of uh, of the church world, Christians that make up the church world, really do any studying about uh, what the spirit man is or what the difference is between the spirit and the soul. I remember Brother Hagin making a statement many years ago that um, uh, that he took a great interest in this subject, and as a result, he always uh, would, uh, would ask when he had the opportunity, great men, um, people that were considered to be, um, you know, great preachers or ministers or whatever, and uh, and he would read after them and, and and try to get all the information he could about some of these men that had been used of God, and uh, and he said that he was in the presence of several of these men, uh, some one that's still alive today, that um, uh, that the question was asked, what's the difference between the spirit and the soul? And this man answered, well, I thought they were the same. Well, Hebrews chapter four verse twelve says the word of God is quick and powerful. Another translation says, full of life and power and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder spirit and soul. Well, if they could be divided, they can't be the same thing. Amen? So, unfortunately, too much of the church world doesn't have any information or much information. Uh, I think any information is probably more accurate. But uh, very little information at, at, uh, at best about uh, what the spirit man is or what the soul is. And as a result... Uh, I think it hampers or hinders our spiritual development because the, the development that God expects you to, to uh, undertake and experience is spiritual development. Well, if you don't know your spirit man, if you don't know the difference between spirit and soul, if you don't know how they interact together, how are you going to develop spiritually the way you should? I think one of the keys to spiritual development is to understand the threefold nature of man. Now, unfortunately, again, too much of the time when uh, when Christians, many Christians, see the word spirit in the Bible, they automatically think it's talking about the Holy Spirit. And there's no difference in the words either in the in the Greek for the New Testament nor the Hebrew for the Old Testament. There's no difference in the words that are used when it's referring to either the Holy Spirit or the human spirit. Now, that's kind of telling, isn't it? I mean, it seems like if there was uh, if God was expecting us to know the difference or uh, recognize some great chasm between the Holy Spirit and the human spirit, as most Christians would assume that there is, wouldn't there be different words for it? Wouldn't God have come up with some different word to identify God, the Spirit, 
as opposed to you as a spirit being? Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 1. I want to look again. We may have looked at this last week, but uh, I really wasn't satisfied with where the service went. uh, Ended up last uh, uh, last Wednesday night. We uh, we kind of marked out some territory, but there's a lot of things that uh, uh, that we didn't get into that we should have. And so, as I said before, I'm just my plan is just to take my time and get into whatever the Lord wants us to do. Notice in Genesis chapter one, verse twenty six. Uh, the first chapter of Genesis is kind of the synopsis of the creation, and then it goes and it tells us a little bit more in detail as it, as it goes forward. But in the summary chapter, chapter 1, after God's made everything else, notice what he said in verse 26. He said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every, uh, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Now we pointed, uh, I I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we made mention of the fact that notice he said, God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. Most people think image and likeness are the same thing. Most people assume that that means God said, let's make them look like us. Well, there's some uh, there's some truth to that. There's no question about that. We know that uh, that what the Bible tells us about God and the form that God took when He dealt with man, at least uh, in uh, in Moses' day, Moses uh, wanted to see the glory of God, and and the Lord spoke to him and said, uh, "You can't see my face and live." Well, that means God's got a face. And then He said, "But what I'll do is I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll put my hand over you." So God's got a hand, and He said, "I'll put my hand over you and I'll walk by and let you see my back parts." Well, that means God's got a front and a back. It sounds kind of like us. We've got face, a face. We've got hands. We've got front parts and back parts. It sounds like we look similar to what God looks like. And there's no question in my mind that that's what he means when he uses the word likeness, after our likeness. But the key word in Genesis 1.26, in my estimation, is the word image. Let's think about what he's saying. We already know from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23 that man is spirit, soul, and body, right? We also know in John chapter 4 verse 24 when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well of Samaria, she asked about where should we worship, and Jesus says this, makes this statement in John 4, 24. He said, God is a spirit. He did not say God is spirit. Most, some people think that God's like, you know, spirit being and he just kind of floats around and, and doesn't have a form. The Bible never says that. It says God is a spirit. Now, I, I, I'll have to beg ignorance here and lack of understanding of how God could be infinite and still finite in his being. I don't know how that works. How can God be omnipresent and still be a spirit? See, if God's spirit like a cloud or like the air, then you can understand how he could be everywhere at once. And the Bible tells us that God is omnipresent, yet it tells us he is a spirit. How can a spirit be everywhere at once? Well, if, you, if you're looking at me thinking I'm going to give you the answer, I have no clue. I, I just don't know. Yet Jesus said God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, by definition, then, if we're made in the image of God, made to be like God, made in the same form, and I'm not talking about physical form, I'm not talking about appearance, but if we're made in the same form as God, and God is a spirit, we have to be a spirit being. 
Man has to be a spirit being. Now, th- take into consideration at the, what point in time God's saying this. He's made everything that there is on the earth and saves man till last. So what that tells us is there's not anything else that God made and put here on the earth that is in his image. Or another way to say that is, that is a spirit being. Animals must not have spirits. They have personality that comes from their soul, but they don't, they're not spirit beings. Now, I'm, uh, I'm hesitant to say Fluffy's not going to be in heaven waiting for you. Because God obviously likes animals. He used that, must have used some kind of pattern for animals to put whatever animals are here on the earth. And if you look at some of those beasts that are around his, his throne, those things that have four faces and, and the face of a lion and the face of a bear and different things like that, God must think those things look good. I don't know. But but animals can't have be spirit beings. Only man, only man was made in the image of God or made in the same form or nature as God. Now, let's look again at verse 26. He said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Again, I think one of those means appearance. Likeness means appearance, but image means make him a spirit being, too. And let them have dominion. Please notice that God created the one thing that he created as a spirit being, which was man, was was destined to have authority here on the earth. Man, the spirit being, the only thing that was made in the image of God, was created to dominate or subdue the earth. Well, when did God change his mind about that? We know that man fell. And he lost his place of dominion. He came under the rule of Satan and was dominated by sin and death. But don't think for a minute that God ever changed his mind about man having dominion on the earth. Let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fowl of the air. I'm sorry, over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. In other words, over every non-spirit being that, that was created over every non-spirit being that was created. Now turn with me over to to, uh, Psalm uh, 8. Psalm 8 is going to give us a little bit of insight into the creation of man from a little bit different perspective. Genesis 126 tells us God in uh, saying, let us make man in our own image. Us must mean God's talking to the Trinity. God the Father is speaking to the Son and the Holy Spirit. Or maybe it's the Son speaking to the Father and the Spirit. At any rate, it's got to be three of them there together, because it, otherwise it wouldn't be us. It's got to be more than one. Now notice in Psalm 8, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 6, Paul tells us that this was spoken by an angel. One of the angels testified this, and he quotes these verses of Scripture that we're, we're going to read from Psalm 8 in Hebrews chapter 2, I think it's about verse 6. But notice what the angel said. The angel says in verse 4, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And when he says, what is man, what is he talking about? He's talking about what is this spirit being that you're creating? What is man? What is this spirit being that you're creating? That thou art mindful of him. And the son of man that thou visitest him. So God's obviously made his plan clear. The angels know that his plan His intent is to walk with mankind and to fellowship with him in the cool of the day like he did with Adam in the Garden of Eden. 
Heaven knows the plan of God, in other words. What is man? What is the spirit being you're creating that you're mindful of him and your plan to visit him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Now, from the King James translation, this sounds like the angels are saying you've made him a little lower than us. But if you look up this word angels, you're going to find out it's the word that's used in the Old Testament that means Elohim. Elohim is the word that's always used for the Trinity, for the Godhead. For example, it says in Genesis 1, and God said, that's Elohim said. And God said when he created the earth, and God said, let there be light, that's Elohim said, let there be light. And God said, let the firmament appear and so forth, that's Elohim. So literally what the angels are saying is, what is man? And this must, uh, in my uh, understanding, this is why they must be so astonished. You're creating something that's not below us. You're creating something that's just a little below you. What is this thing called man? Which tells me that whatever was created here on the earth prior to God making Adam, forming him from the dust of the earth, in generations past, pre-Adamic races, when uh, when Satan was here on the earth ruling in, in some form or another and had a throne on the earth, whatever that is, wasn't man. What is man that thou art mindful of him? The spirit being floored the angels. For thou hast made him a little lower than Elohim, than yourself, and hast crowned him with glory and the honor, and hast made him to have dominion over the works of your hands, and has put all thi- thou hast put all things under his feet. Spirit beings are in, were intended by God to dominate. And God's plan never changed. Spirit beings are still here on the earth, destined by God to dominate. Now, here's the question. How would they dominate? How would they have dominion on the earth? How is it that spirit beings were created in order to have dominion on the earth? Well, the the source of life for the only spirit beings that had been created was God breathing into mankind the breath of life, and he became a living soul. King James says living soul. The word soul there is used as uh, translated as the word spirit in other places in the Old Testament. What it's saying is man wasn't alive. He formed his body. Adam is, is looks just the same as he would later on, but there's no life in his body until God breathed into it. Now, I don't know for sure how this worked, but it says that everything else God created, he created by speaking. So when he breathed into him, it very well may be that he stood out him up in front of him in some way or another, and he spoke life. And the breath of his words imparted life to Adam, and he became a living being. Well, wh- how did he become a living being? He became a living being in the image of God. He was already in his likeness before he was alive. He looked like God. He looked like man would look, but he wasn't alive. In other words... As James said, as the body without the, uh, without the spirit is dead, so also is faith without works. What's he saying? He's saying a body's dead unless it's got a spirit in it. So when God breathed into him the breath of life, he has to be, put, be putting a spirit in him in order for him to live. And that's where the angels are floored. Where did you get this idea from man? Again, I don't think the angels would be so shocked by this if man was made lower than them. But it seems that their surprise in this whole thing is, what kind of plan have you got for man that you made him a little lower than yourself? Not lower than us, 
But between us and you, us the angels and you, God, you made man and gave him dominion. Otherwise, the angels could have taken a position that, well, good, somebody else we've got to help us do the work. We can order them around. But that's not what they're saying. They're saying you gave man dominion. So the only thing on the earth that's made in the image of God as a spirit being now has dominion. And the source of that dominion, the source of that life that made him in the image of God, and that's the only thing that made him in the image of God. I mean, if you want to, if you want to, this may be a crude um, illustration, but assuming that there were gorillas and, and apes on the earth when it was first made, they're made in the likeness of God too. They've got faces and hands and arms and legs and so forth. So the thing that makes man in God's image is the fact that he's a spirit being. And the only way that he could be a spirit being and live is for God to breathe his spirit into mankind. So his source of dominion was his union with God. The source of his dominion was his righteous nature. Which is what God created man to be. Now we know what happened. We know that Adam and Eve fell. We know they disobeyed God. You, uh, um, where, did I, where did I leave you? Did I leave you in Psalms? Turn back with me to Genesis again. I want you to see this for yourself. Because when God gives man commandments, or a commandment really, he told him to subdue the earth. He told him to dress and keep it. The dress and keep literally mean guard and protect it. So there must have been an enemy here on the earth already. Which tells me that, that the Garden of Eden is not a, necessarily a place where there is no enemy. It's the place where you have dominion in the presence of your enemy. See, we think that perfection is there'll be no devil, there'll be nothing else to, to deal with. That's not the, the environment that God put man in the middle of. He put man in, in the middle of a place that was created and everything was very good, but there was an enemy here. And he had a job to dress and keep or guard and protect the garden from that enemy. And he failed in his duties. Now, notice what God commanded the, uh, the man to do. Verse 15 of chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. God, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress and keep it. As I said, that means to guard and protect it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Notice it's not the tree of good and evil. It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Please notice that phrase. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. In the Greek, the, the I mean, I'm sorry, in the uh, original Hebrew, it's kind of a play on words and it would more accurately be translated. For in the day that thou eat thereof, dying, thou shalt die. Now, let's talk about this death he's, he's predicting as a consequence of their disobedience. We know that Adam, the Bible tells us, Genesis gives us great uh, uh, specific information, that uh, Adam didn't die for 930 years till 930 years after he uh, disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden and, and uh, uh, ate of the tree of the knowledge of good, of good and evil. So in the day that thou eat thereof, thou shalt surely die, can't be talking about physical death. Can it? I mean, did God make a mistake? Adam ate of the, of the tree. 
that he was commanded not to eat thereof and didn't die that day. And God said, wow, I guess I really put something extra in him that I didn't know. Of course not. It's not physical death that he was telling would overtake him. And that's what dying thou shalt die means. It means death will overtake you. He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about in that day something happening. Well, what happened in that day that he ate thereof? Well, you remember the story. As soon as they ate, their eyes were opened and they saw they were naked and they were ashamed. So they started hiding from God. They felt guilt. They felt shame. Folks, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil very simply tells us that God never intended for man to experience guilt and shame. He could have learned good and evil from the instruction of God without ever having to experience it. It was the guilt and shame that he was trying to protect man from. The guilt and shame of wrongdoing. But their eyes were open. Well, what were their eyes open to? Their eyes were open to their physical condition. Well, what had their eyes been on before then? If their eyes were just open to their physical condition, now all of a sudden they're, they're naked and they, they're, they're ashamed of it. Then what had they been conscious of beforehand? Well, it wasn't their physical bodies. It wasn't their physical condition. I mean, it's not like all of a sudden their clothes fell off when they ate of the tree. They're no more naked now than they were before they ate. Unless possibly they were clothed with the light of God's glory and that glory went out. Now, that's a possibility. Something drew their attention. So what were they conscious of prior to that? Well, I don't see but one conclusion we can draw, and that was they were conscious of the source of life that was in them rather than their exterior circumstances. Or at least we could say they were more conscious of spiritual things and that source of their life, that source of righteous nature that was placed within them. But when they disobeyed God, all that changed. So what happened? They lost their righteous nature and became unrighteous in nature. And when they became unrighteous in nature, they lost their place of dominion. From that point forward, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that Satan is considered to be the God of this world. How did Satan become the God of this world? Because he took that place of dominion from Adam and Eve. Now, I know a lot of people don't like to, to think of it in this term, these terms. But God created Adam and Eve to be gods of this world. That doesn't mean gods like God in heaven. That means the rulers of this earth. And when it says that Satan is the God of this world, it doesn't mean that he's doing anything except ruling over this earth that's subject to sin and death now because of Adam and Eve's transgression. So now man has lost the very thing that made him in the image of God. He's still a spirit being. He doesn't cease to exist, although he did cease to exist in the same nature that he did, that he had before. His righteous nature has ceased to exist. But the fact that God first and originally placed life within him by making him a spirit being, he doesn't, he doesn't fall over dead. He continues to exist just in a new nature, a new fallen nature. Well, what are they going to do now? Turn with me over to Ezekiel chapter 36. God had a plan. I, I had, um, um, 
Well, somebody somebody wrote me an uh, an email here this uh, this last week. They heard last Wednesday night's message, and they had a lot of advice for me on how I could uh, add to my preaching and different things like that. And one of the things they said was, uh, "Imagine what things would have been like if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned in the Garden of Eden. If they had allowed their spirit to dominate their flesh. If they hadn't walked according to their soul." And I didn't answer, but I thought, "Well, that wouldn't have been any good." Because what that would mean is, if we lived now still on this earth in the original condition that God created Adam, that means we would know God as creator but not as redeemer. And to know God as our redeemer and not just our creator, in my opinion, is a much greater thing. We've certainly seen a greater display of God's love in the plan of redemption than we did just in the creation. So here's God's plan. Ezekiel chapter 36. Verse 25. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. Now what's he talking about? He's not talking about physical cleanliness. He's not talking about filthiness as, as far as the physical body is concerned. He's talking about that fallen nature. Now again, we think of death as being the end of something. A, a cessation of existence. But man didn't cease to exist. His nature changed. He fell from righteous in God's image, union with God, to separation from God. Unrighteousness is separation from God. And compared to righteousness, unrighteousness is filthiness. And that's what he's talking about here. So he says, then will I sprinkle clean water on you. The Bible talks about the Lord washing us with, uh, 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 cleansing us with the washing of the water by the word. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's referring to. He's saying, I will bring the word of God to you and it will cleanse you. Now, how is that going to cleanse us? From all your filthiness and all your idols, I will cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you. And a new spirit will I put within you. Now, please notice God's plan was never to fix the old spirit up. His plan was never to take to take Adam, if Adam had still been alive, from the righteous spirit to the unrighteous spirit and back to the righteous spirit. That's not God's plan. God's plan was to replace the unrighteous spirit. It's not a renewal. It's a rebirth. It's uh, it's a funny thing how so many Christians think they've just been cleaned up. And they haven't. They've been made new. For example, if you took your car into the shop and got it fixed up, you wouldn't come tell me you had a new car. You might say it runs like new, but that word like means that it's not really new. It might run better than it did before you had it in the shop, but if you came and told me you've got a new car, I wouldn't think you took your old car into the shop and got it fixed up. No, we would consider new to be something brand new. We would consider new to be something unlike what you had before. And that's what God's talking about. That's what God identifies as his plan. A new heart will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. A new spirit will I put within you. A new spirit will I put within you. Well, see, Pastor Mike, this is just talking about the Holy Spirit. No, it's not. Notice it says, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you. He's saying, I'll give you a new spirit and put my spirit in that. 
Remember when Jesus was talking about uh, wineskins? He said, you can't put new wine in old wineskins because they'll burst and then the, the wine spilled and it's, it's detrimental for everybody. What's he talking about? He's saying you can't put the spirit of God in an old, unregenerate spirit. In other words, man could not be the temple of the Holy Ghost unless he's made new in spirit. It takes a new spirit. Now, knowing just what we've said before, just what uh, what we've seen from Genesis already, if God made man in his image and after his likeness, and it was being made in the image of God that caused Adam to be a living soul, he was already formed from the dust of the earth. He looked like man would look. The body was there, only there was no life in that body. And if that life was the righteous nature of God, which had to be, it said God breathed in him and he became a living soul. Well, what would God breathe into him other than righteousness? That's all he's got. It's impossible for man to have started any other way other than righteous. We know it's got to be a righteous spirit because he's in God's image. Now man has fallen to an unrighteous spiritual nature. And God can't work with that. God can't deal with that at all. That's what the Bible refers to as spiritual death. Spiritual death is an unrighteous nature. Paul talked about this in writing to the Ephesians. He said, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. He didn't say the problem was the sin. He said the problem was you were dead. So many times think that, that God expects sinners to quit sinning. Well, sinners can't quit sinning until they become righteous. It's impossible to quit sinning unless you become righteous in nature. And that's what the Jews were trying to do, but trying to keep the law. They were trying to quit sinning, trying to quit breaking the law and the commandments of God by just living better and living right. And it's impossible to do. So here's God's plan. I'll take the old heart out of you. I'll put a new spirit in you, which shows us the heart and the spirit are interchangeable terms in this context. I'll put a new spirit within you and then I'll put my spirit within you. And notice it says, and cause you to walk in my statutes. You see that phrase, and cause you to walk in my statutes. In other words, he's saying this new spirit and my spirit in you gives you a power that you don't have on your own. Now, Ezekiel knows what he's talking about. And the Jews he's writing to knows what he's talking about. Because they've had the law of Moses for hundreds of years and nobody's been able to keep it. But he says this new nature will cause you to walk in my statutes. And keep my judgments and do them. Now turn back with me over to, uh, to Jeremiah chapter 31. Let me show you what Jeremiah said about God's plan to redeem mankind. Jeremiah chapter 31. Let's start reading in the verse, uh, verse 33. It says, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. Now, instead of using the word heart or the word spirit, he talks about the inward parts. Well, what do we know that to be? It has to be the spirit of man. It has to be the spirit of man. You know what's interesting? We usually associate feelings with the body, but that's not really accurate. For a number of reasons. Number one, we think of the physical senses as being representative of what we can see and feel. 
or represented by what we can see and feel. But science tells us that although it looks like I'm touching this podium, and although it feels like I'm touching this podium, there's always a separation between two two, uh, solid objects. There are molecules, there are atoms that keep my finger from really touching this podium. And the podium is made up of moving uh, moving molecules anyway, so even though it looks and feels and sounds solid to us, it's not really solid as we imagine. So it's not the physical touch that I feel. It's the sensation that comes from the close proximity. But, you know, we also know that people that have a problem, uh, a deformity or some kind of um, missing connection with their brain, sometimes they don't feel things in their bodies. They, there have been uh, situations where kids have broken bones and they haven't known it because their body didn't, their, their brains did not transmit the right signals when the physical impulse was there or they had an absence of a physical impulse. And so even though they came in contact with something, there was no feeling. So really feeling is not of the body. Feeling is of the soul. We looked last week at uh, Luke chapter 16, where it talked about the rich man and Lazarus. Both of them died. The rich man went to hell. Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom. They both were cognizant. They both were just as aware of themselves and their surroundings as when they were on the earth. They were both aware of one another. Or at least the rich man was aware of Lazarus. We don't know that Lazarus was aware of the rich man, but we do know that Abraham was aware of the rich man in hell. They knew one another. They knew who each other was. So their cognitive abilities were still intact. For this reason, Paul said, talking about his own experience, when he was caught up into heaven, the third heaven, he said, I don't know if I was in the body or out of the body. Well, how could he not tell? There's only one explanation. Because being absent from the body feels like you're, feels just like you're still in the body. You still feel like you. Jesus existed with the Father in heaven before he ever came to the earth, didn't he? And the Bible says the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He didn't become any less Jesus when he took on a physical body, did he? He didn't become less Jesus when he laid that body down as a sacrifice for mankind, did he? It's still him. It's still the real him. Well, the spirit of man is the real you. Paul calls him the inner man. And contrast him with the outer man. Peter calls him the hidden man of the heart. Well, hidden from what? Hidden from the five physical senses. So here he says, I will put my law in your inward parts. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. And write it in their hearts. What does he mean? Well, if he's talking about the inward part, then the heart's got to be the spirit. Here's where so many people miss it. Because they think God. And a thought will come to their mind and they'll imagine that it, since it's godly or it's something in line with the word that God has spoken to them about something. But God doesn't talk to your mind. God's not a mind. He's a spirit. So the only place and the only way God's going to communicate with you is in your spirit where he lives. 
I'm not talking in Oklahoma right now because I'm not there. I'm talking here where I am. The same way God doesn't talk to your head because he's not there. He communicates with your spirit. And a lot of times people think about things, and they may be good things that they're thinking about. They daydream in the Holy Ghost, and then imagine that the Holy Ghost has told them something. But it's still just their imagination. Because God communicates with your spirit. God doesn't think through your mind. He communicates with your spirit. So notice he says, and I will write my law in their inward parts. And write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. So something that happens on the inward parts, the spirit of man causes you to know God. Not thank God, not wonder God, not hope God, know God. They shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest, saith the Lord. And I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So he's got to be talking about the new birth experience. He's got to be talking about what the church world calls salvation, right? And notice what happens. He says something happens on the inward parts of man. Well, what happens? Exactly what Ezekiel told us in chapter 36. I'll take out the old stony heart. The hard heart, the unbelieving heart. And I'll put a heart of flesh in you, a tender heart, a heart that's tender toward God. I'll put a new spirit in you. And then I'll put my spirit in that. Now, what's interesting is here where it says, I'll write my law in their hearts. How does God do that? And what does he write in there? Well, folks, it's very simple. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, It says the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost who is given unto us. In other words, when you're born again, it's the love of God, which Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35 was the new commandment that he gave to us, the law of love. So the law that he puts in your heart is the law of love. You remember first John chapter three and verse 14. John said, by this, we know that we pass from death to life. He said, here's how we know that we're born again. Here's how we know that we've been reborn. Here's how we know that we've been made righteous once again, because we love the brethren. That's the law that God writes in your heart. Now, God expects you to write other things in there, too. But he's the law of love is the only thing that he writes in there. He expects us to renew our minds to the word. He expects us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. But how do we do that? David said in Psalm 45, 1, my tongue is as the pen of a ready writer. So as you renew your mind to the word by repeating what the word of God says. Then you write God's word in your heart. But God writes his law in there, the law of love when you're born again. It's amazing how this fits together when you put it together. So what does that mean? That means that there had to have been a price paid for your unrighteous nature. And that's the whole reason Jesus came to the earth. Now, look with me over to Revelation chapter 1. I want you to see something. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. John's writing to the church. And in his introduction... 
He's kind of saying the, the greetings and things like that. Uh, let me just start in verse 1. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead. And the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our, our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now I want you to notice something. Notice the whole reason that Jesus came was to make us kings and priests again. In other words, to restore dominion. God's plan never changed. Let us make man in our own image, and as man is in our own image, in other words, a righteous spirit... He'll have dominion. A man has a measure of authority even when he's unsaved. There's no question about that. But the dominion that God intended for man to have was as man was joined and united in spirit and in nature with God. And God's nature is righteousness. Now, did you notice verse 5? It says Jesus, speaking of Jesus, it says that he was the first begotten of the dead. First begotten of the dead? Now, what does that mean? Well, what dead is he talking about? What, do, what does he mean when he says first begotten? First begotten, uh, the word begotten means to be born. So it says Jesus was the firstborn from the dead. Well, what dead? It can't be the physical death. Because in Jesus' ministry, there were two people that he raised from the dead. One was the funeral for the young boy that he came up on. He stopped the funeral procession, reached out and touched the little coffin thing that the boy was in. The boy revived and he gave him back to his mother. The second was Lazarus. He raised him from the dead after he had been buried for three days. So Jesus could not have been the first begotten or firstborn of physical death. Not only that, but we've got instances in the Old Testament where people were raised from the dead too. So it's impossible for Jesus to be the firstborn from physical death. Well, then what death is it talking about? There's only another, one other kind of death, and that's spiritual death. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus was the firstborn from spiritual death. Now, you can't be born from spiritual death unless you are spiritually dead. Now, we already know what spiritual death is. That's the result of Adam and Eve's sin. In the day that you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. That's spiritual death. That was a change of nature from righteous nature to unrighteous nature. So that means Jesus had to partake of an unrighteous nature in order to be born back from spiritual death. Now, I know with some people this is real controversial, and, and even with some this is considered to be blasphemous. But the Bible is real clear on it, folks. Jesus could not be the firstborn from physical death because he was not the first one raised from the dead. Physical death. Then it's got to be talking about another death. And there's only one other kind of death, and that's spiritual death. So in order for Jesus to be the firstborn from spiritual death, he had to have been spiritually dead, 
which means unrighteous nature and separation from God. That's why 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So what does that mean? That means that Jesus had to make an exchange. And the only way for God to put a new spirit in you and then put his spirit in your new spirit. The only way for you to be born again. Remember what Jesus told uh, Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You must be born again, except a man be born of water, natural birth, and of the spirit, a spiritual birth or rebirth. He cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. So what happened? Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice, not just spilled his blood. It wasn't just a physical death that Jesus endured. If it was just a physical death that Jesus endured, there would have been no purpose for the three days and nights between his death and his resurrection. But those three days in between the cross and the and the resurrection were of huge importance because those were the days when Jesus was made spiritually dead, not because of his actions, but to redeem you. You remember when Jesus on the cross cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's when spiritual death overtook him. He's telling us I'm separated from my, my father for the first time ever. For the first time through eternity past, I'm separated from my father. Well, what does that mean then? That means Jesus is going to have to go to the place of the spiritually dead. He's going to have to go to hell just like the rich man did in Luke chapter 16. He couldn't go to Abraham's bosom if he's spiritually dead. Because those in Abraham's bosom were those that were operating on a promise of life. But that's not why Jesus became sin for us. He became sin as our substitute. Jesus is not looking for the Messiah. He's not looking for the Redeemer. He's the one doing the redeeming. So he had to go to the place of the spiritually dead. He had to go to hell. And he had to suffer the, the indignity of a sinner. Not only that, but the Bible tells us that God poured out all of his wrath upon Jesus. The wrath that fell upon Jesus was not the wrath that a sinner would endure. It was not the torment of the flames that the rich man endured in hell in Luke chapter 16 that Jesus tells us about. No, instead, it was the torment of all of man's sins from Adam forward and the punishment thereof that fell upon Jesus. It crushed, the the Bible tells us, it uses the word, it crushed Jesus under the wrath of God. But there came a moment when that price was paid. When was that moment? Romans chapter, um, well, it's the last verse of Romans chapter 3, I think it is. It's a, maybe it's chapter 4. It says, well, I'm going to have to find it. Let me read something to you. King James is really, really poor on this verse.
It's the last verse of chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Let's back up a little bit uh, to verse 24. It says, uh, or verse 23. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed unto him. Talking about Abraham and uh, the righteousness being imputed or the promise of righteousness being given to him. But for us also to whom it shall be imputed. If we believe on him that raised up Jesus, our Lord from the dead. Now, it's talking about Jesus in verse 25. Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification? If you leave that word for like it is, then it just says Jesus was raised so that we could be saved. That's not what that word is. The word for is the word when. It denotes time. It says Jesus was raised up from the dead when you were justified. In other words, Jesus endured the punishment, the wrath of God in the place of the spiritually dead in hell. Jesus endured the wrath of God for every moment, every act, every little part of sin that had been committed and that mankind was was subject to and responsible for until it was all paid. And the instant that it was paid, the instant that the sacrifice, a just sacrifice was made so that you and I could be changed and reborn from the unrighteous nature that we were born into because of Adam's sin and then made new. A replacement, if you will, of the old spirit with a new spirit and then God's spirit could be in us. When that moment occurred and not one second longer, that's when Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus only suffered as long as it took to save you because God wouldn't leave them there for one moment longer. So what happened? The Bible says that Jesus then preached to the saints in prison. In other words, he went from hell, the same hell that the rich man has just uh, described to be in, in Luke chapter 16, to Abraham's bosom. You remember what Abraham said when the rich man wanted Lazarus to come dip his, uh, you know, take water and put cool his tongue and that kind of thing? You remember what Abraham said? Abraham said, well, first of all, that's not the way it works. But secondly, nobody can pass from us to you. You can't come from you to us and we can't come from us to you. You can't travel back and forth. In other words, they were captive in the, the territory that they were in. Even though it was a place of comfort, Abraham's bosom was a prison because they couldn't leave. They couldn't go into the presence of God. They were still captive because sin hadn't yet been paid for. But, oh, when Jesus paid the price, where did he go? He went instantly to those that had the promise of salvation. The Bible says he led captivity captive. Where did he take them then? He took them into heaven. Now, think about this, folks. Heaven was created, was created from the beginning with God's plan of redemption in mind. Heaven was pla- was created for God to have a place to fellowship with mankind for eternity. God's plan wasn't to fellowship with man in the Garden of Eden for eternity. His plan was to fellowship with, with God, with man in heaven for eternity. Now the Bible says at the end that heaven comes down, there's a new heaven and a new earth, and the new Jerusalem comes down to the earth. But that's still considered to be part of heaven. It's something that's in heaven that comes down and is placed on the earth. So heaven was intended to be populated by mankind so that God could fellowship with man throughout all eternity. But not one man had ever set foot in heaven. The only one that was there was God and the angels. 
But Jesus instantly populated heaven. He led captivity captive, took them into heaven. Can you imagine that day? Can you imagine that moment when everybody goes from Abraham's bosom, the prison, even though it was a place of comfort, it's still a prison. They're made new. They didn't precede Jesus. Jesus was the first one that was born again when we were justified, when the price was paid. That's when the voice came from heaven or something along that line that said that it's finished. And Jesus was reborn. He was born again from the dead, from spiritual death. And then he goes and preaches to the saints in Abraham's bosom. Then they're born again. And then he takes them into heaven. Can you imagine the joy of God? When the first saints, the first men from the earth, who now are reborn into a righteous nature, enter into God's plan. Jesus stops to pick up his body and what does he do? He comes and tells us, now's the time you can be born again too. Folks, you being created in the image of God and being made a spirit being means a whole lot more to God than it seems to mean to man. The new birth we think of is where guilt rolls away. We think of where God lifts a two-ton weight off of our shoulders. There's all kinds of descriptions that people use, but it means a whole lot more to God than it does to us. That's not supposed to be that way, and it's not supposed to stay that way. That's why we're to renew our minds. That, that's why it's such a slap in God's face for people to think that they still have an old man to deal with. Turn with, let's close with this. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four. Most people think the old man is the sin in the flesh. It's not. The old man was the unrighteous spirit that was in you. And he's gone. Ephesians chapter four. Uh, how far back do we want to read? Let's start reading in verse 20. It says, but you have not so learned Christ. He's talking about uh, uh, people doing wrong things and living wrong, wrong kinds of lives, giving themselves over to, to unclean things and such. But you have not so learned Christ. This is Ephesians 4, verse 20. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus that you put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now notice how he says that, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. What's he talking about? He's talking about work that takes place in the real you. He's talking about renewing your mind to the word like Romans chapter 12 talks about. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word renewing there means reversal by repetition. The more you say what God's word says about you or about your situation, then the more it writes, the more your tongue writes on the tablets of your heart, the law of God or the truth of God's word. So he says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man, which after God is created. Notice that is created in righteousness and true holiness. You know what he's saying, folks? He's saying, learn who you are from the word and live up to who you've been made. That's all he's saying. 
He's saying the only reason that somebody is living according to the old conversation, the old manner of life, is because they don't know who they are in Christ. They don't realize they've been created as a spirit being, recreated in the image of God in righteousness and true holiness. You know how people backslide? It's not because they want to. It's because they don't know who they really are. Because anybody that sees who they really are and sees the dominion that belongs to a born-again spirit made righteous by the blood of Jesus, who's going to pick what the world's got to offer? Brother Hagin used to say this. He used to say, you know, so many people are trying to live right. He said, I never have tried to live right. I just realized who I am and been made right. That's the key. To come to the knowledge of who we are. Do you realize the dominion that God has restored you to by recreating your spirit? I've always been intrigued by a scripture that says that when we get to heaven, we'll look on the devil and we'll say, is this the guy that caused so much trouble? Him? Really? Because at that point, we'll see who we are with eyes wide open and we'll see who he is or isn't with our eyes wide open. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you've made us in your image. Thank you that you've chosen to place us in a position of authority. Father, we thank you that you've restored us to righteousness. You've recreated us. We can truly say that it's true for us. What 2 Corinthians 5.17 speaks of. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new species of being. Old things have passed away, spiritually things. Old things have passed away. And all things have become new. Oh, thank you, Father, for opening our eyes to who we really are. Open our eyes, Father, to the fact that we have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Open our eyes, Father, to the fact that we've been given authority over all the power of the devil and that nothing shall by any means hurt us. Open our eyes, Father, to the fullness of the love of God that's in us. Open our eyes, Father, to realize the power of the Holy Spirit that's in us because we are filled with you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.